0: Hi, this is John, by the way, and today I'm looking at Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 in the Come Follow Me lesson. There's also Joseph Smith, Matthew 1, Mark 12 and 13, and Luke 21. I wanted to focus on three parables of preparation in Matthew 25. And what I love about these is they're, they're not parables of the gospel as much as they are parables of preparation for the second coming. And, of course, the gospel's in there, but you see what I mean. This is about being ready when Jesus comes again. And the first one is the parable of the ten virgins, or the wise and foolish virgins. And first, I wanted to read a little bit of background from a book by Andrew C. Skinner and W. Jeffrey Marsh called Scriptural Parables. This is what they said. A wedding in Jesus' day was one of the most important and anticipated celebrations in Jewish life. The wedding party was exempt from certain religious duties. Scholars of the village or town even suspended their study of the Torah. The customs and procedures surrounding the celebration were well known and required the man or bridegroom and his associates to call for the bride in processional array and take her back to his home for a wedding feast. As the party returned with the bride, usually carried on a litter, the friends of the bride, including young unmarried maidens of the village, joined the procession. Because weddings were celebrated at night, the beginning of a new day in Jewish tradition, those waiting to join the procession as it returned from the bride's house would carry lights. So here's the parable from Jesus in Matthew 25. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for, you, for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. I heard somebody say once about that word, therefore, when you see the word therefore, ask what it is there for. <laughs> this is like the point of the parable. Watch therefore. Ye know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Okay, so you have to watch. And watch, you've, you've heard about people being appointed to a different watch. It's, it's a guard. Like the night watchman. So, sometimes, paintings depicting the ten virgins often show large lamps and either, even larger vessels for storing oil. But the Herodian-era lamps are very small. They're only three inches across. They're, they're circular and they can be cradled in the palm of your hand. You can carry them that way. The authentic first-century vessels for carrying extra oil were also small, perhaps only enough for one refill. So the wise virgins didn't carry big jugs full of oil with plenty to spare. And perhaps it's not then that they wouldn't share this. They always sounded stingy to me when I was a kid, but they couldn't share without running out themselves. So the very small vessels are consistent with the response of the wise virgins in verse 9. Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. Now, one of the things I've discovered in researching this is that even Latter-day Saint scholars can disagree. Here is another excerpt from Scriptural Parables on page 142. The lamps spoken of in our English translations of this parable were actually torches, not the small hand-sized clay lamps of the Herodian era that are now copied and sold by most shopkeepers and hawkers in the Holy Land. Hand-sized lamps would not provide the amount of light necessary for nighttime wedding processionals. Necessary light could be produced only by torches, which required large amounts of oil to stay lit. Some estimate the oil required for these torches had to be replenished every 15 minutes or so. The oil was probably pure olive oil, according to tradition and rabbinic discussion. To trim a lamp meant to cut off the charred ends of the torch and douse it with fresh oil. So we've got some scholars saying, They were little lamps, some scholars saying they were torches. But the whole point is, you can't share the oil. And I like what President Kimball has said about this. He said, in Faith Precedes the Miracle, page 255 and 256, President Kimball said, this is not selfishness or unkindness. The kind of oil that is needed to illuminate the way and light up the darkness is not shareable. How can one share obedience to the principle of tithing, a mind at peace from righteous living, an accumulation of knowledge? How can one share faith or testimony? How can one share attitudes or chastity or the experience of a mission? How can one share temple privileges? Each must obtain that kind of oil for himself. The foolish virgins were not averse to buying oil. They knew they should have oil. They merely procrastinated, not knowing when the bridegroom would come. So there is the watch, therefore. The next parable in Matthew 25 was the parable of the talents. And I don't want to read this whole thing because you all know it. One was given five talents, another two, another one, and some, you know, gained by their talents some more talents. And the one who was only given one buried his talent. Now, I wanted to go through because I was curious about when the word talent went from meaning money to meaning a gospel message or a gift that you have and so here's here's what i saw bible dictionary page 734 the talent and the mina are not coins but sums of money so a talent is a sum of money revelation sixteen twenty one. And there fell upon a man a great hail out of heaven, every stone, about the weight of a talent. Okay, so there, a talent is a measure of weight, and that's about 75 pounds. In Ether 1235, in the Book of Mormon, we get this, if the Gentiles have not charity because of our weakness, that thou wilt prove them and take away their talent, yea, even that which they have received, and give unto them who shall have more abundantly, so that Sounds like the gospel message, what they have received. Section 60 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 2. With some I am not well pleased, they will not open their mouths, but they hide the talent which I have given unto them because of the fear of man. That's the gospel message again. And again in section 60, verse 13. Thou shalt not idle away thy time, neither shalt thou bury thy talent that it may not be known. So that's the gospel message. Now, This last one sounds like property, section 82, verse 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And all this for the benefit of the church of the living God, that every man may improve upon his talent, that every man may gain other talents, yea, even an hundredfold, to be cast into the Lord's storehouse, to become the common property of the whole church. So, what is it? Is it money? Is it property? Is it gifts and talents? Because it's become kind of to, to speak of your talents, like I have a gift for music, or I can play the piano, or I can dance, or I can write poetry. That's my talent. When did it become that? I'm not really sure. But you can see that they're all kind of synonymous. It's something that we've been given and that we are expected to improve. Elder Bruce Armaconky, in his New Testament commentary, Volume 1, page 689, he said this, Every man must use such talents as he may have, or they will be lost. If a man cannot compose music, perhaps he can sing in the choir. If he cannot write books, at least he can read them. If he cannot paint pictures, he can learn to appreciate the artistry of others. If he cannot achieve preeminence in one specific field, so be it, he can still succeed in his own field. For each man has some talent. And he will be judged on the basis of how he uses what he has. So there we've got this idea. It's a gift. What are you going to do with it? And Stephen Robinson wrote in his book, Following Christ, In the parable of the talents, it didn't matter that one servant had been given five and the other only two. What mattered most was what both servants did with what God gave them. The master said to each one of them, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. It is better to be a faithful second string player with limited talents, pun intended, than to be an unfaithful superstar. That's good, huh? (laughs) Now, the last parable in Matthew 25 is the parable of the sheep and the goats. When he separates the sheep from the goats. Now, if we just think of it that way, oh, wicked, righteous, but it is much more specific than just wicked and righteous when it speaks of the sheep and the goats this time. It sounds like the sheep are those that served and loved, and the goats are those that didn't serve and love. And that's a different thing. That's more specific than just wicked righteous. So the Savior says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked. I was sick. I was in prison. The sheep did things. You gave me meat. You gave me drink. You took me in. You clothed me, you visited me, you came unto me. But what did the goats do? You gave me no meat, you gave me no drink, you took me not in, you clothed me not, you visited me not. So in this way, it's really more of a, a parable about service and about ministering. And ministering is a is a big deal now that we've gone from home teaching and visiting teaching to ministering. So the... This division, the sheep and the goats, isn't about attendance to church, the number of memorized scriptures, knowledge of the doctrines, callings held, number of talks given. It's, it shouldn't be surprising to us the separation to the Lord's right hand or left is based on service to others. So those on his right hand served and those on his left did not. One of the interesting things about this parable If you were seeing the sheep and the goats, here's, here's another excerpt from Scriptural Parables, page 155. Gathering sheep to the right hand, the covenant hand, and symbol of the place of blessing and honor, while gathering goats to the left, the hand of condemnation, and the sinister hand from the Latin sinister, meaning left, was a task shepherds could complete without guesswork. Palestinian and Syrian sheep were white, while the goats were almost always black. They could even be told apart at dusk in like manner. Jesus, the perfect judge, will not need to employ any guesswork in rendering his judgment. That's interesting. Now, these parables, these three parables of preparation, always remind me of the Boy Scout motto. Now, we're not doing the Boy Scouts officially in the church anymore, but you've got to hand it to that amazing motto the scout motto be prepared those are two words that can mean so much and can save us so many problems the lord added to that if ye are prepared ye shall not fear and i think in thinking about the second coming if we are prepared we don't need to fear or worry about the second coming because it's not when will he come it's we've already come to him so in a way we're we're already there I remembered, as I was preparing for this, something Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said, and when I tracked it down, it was a CES devotional address called Israel, Israel, God is Calling, delivered at Dixie State University in St. George. But you can find it on lds.org. Just look for Israel, Israel, God is Calling. Sorry, it's called churchofjesuschrist.org now. But this is what Elder Holland said, which I think perfectly describes The the kind of, of what do we do with these parables? This is what Elder Hahn said, quote, When the Savior comes, I so want to be caught living the gospel. I want to be surprised right in the act of spreading the faith and doing something good. I want the Savior to say to me, Jeffrey, because he knows all of our names, I recognize you not by your title, but by your life, by the way you are trying to live and the standards you are trying to defend. I see the integrity of your heart. I know you have tried to make things better first and foremost by being better yourself, and then by declaring my word and defending my gospel to others in the most compassionate way you could. I know you weren't always successful, he will certainly say, with your own sins or the circumstances of others, but I believe you honestly tried. I believe in your heart you truly loved me. I want to have something like that encounter some day, as I want nothing else in this mortal life. And I want it for you. I want it for us all. I love the idea. I want to be caught in the act of doing something good. I want to be I want the savior to to catch me in the act of being where I'm supposed to be, doing what I'm supposed to be doing. One of the things that I find interesting in the scriptures is a couple of different ways the Lord pairs us for the second coming. There's these type of parables A couple of other metaphors, and I need to look up where these are. The thief in the night kind of sounds like those that are not prepared. He comes like a thief in the night. But I love the other metaphor as a woman in travail. A woman in travail is a woman in labor. She knows she's pregnant. She has known for a long time she's pregnant. And I think it will be that way with us. If we are treasuring up the word, then we are aware of the signs of the times. We can see where the world's going. We can see what the world is doing. And that will let us be able to look around and go, yep, that was supposed to happen. Yep, it's supposed this is supposed to be like this. Yep, I've heard that things would be this wicked, this confusing. And we will see the signs. Like a woman in travail will be going, oh, yeah, this, it's coming. And hopefully that will help us to be where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to be doing, so that we can be prepared for when the Savior comes again. That's what all these Matthew 25 parables are about. They were answering a question, when will these things be? And thankfully, the Lord wants us to be prepared. He's not, I'm not going to tell you. He's, He's giving us signs so that we will know all we have to do is look around and pay attention. Well, I hope these three parables of preparation have been helpful today, and we'll talk to you next time.